With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. and welcome to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Shannon Paulus. I'm a writer at Slate where I cover health and science. This season, we're talking about the world of running with athletes, coaches, and people who do all manner of things to help others go for a run. This week, we're talking to Amy Begley. She's a running coach, Olympian, and also one of the women who spoke out last fall against the former head coach of Nike's Oregon Project for being emotionally abusive. She'll tell us about her own coaching philosophy, how she's helping athletes prep for Olympic marathon trials, and why it can be hard for her to get in a run these days. Amy also loves dogs, and so for the second time this season of working, we had a dog sit in on the interview. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Amy Begley and I'm the coach at Atlanta Track Club. And what kind of athletes do you coach and what are you coaching them to do? So my job is split between two. So I coach the Olympic development team, which is middle distance athletes, 800 meter runners and marathoners. And I also coach the in-training programs, which is people that are training for their first 5K, half marathon, marathon. It's really anybody that wants to compete in any of our races or other races. And so for the elite team, you guys have marathon trials coming up, right? We do, 19 days away. Nice. So what are you doing with your athletes this week to get them ready for that? Well, our athletes are kind of split in two right now. Those that could take time off have been in Albuquerque training at altitude for the past five weeks, and they'll return actually tomorrow. 
And then the others that stayed here, um, you know, they've been dealing with the lovely weather here for you know, the last couple of weeks. It's been a little crazy. Um, they did their really last hard workout on Saturday, and now it's a little bit, you know, tapering. It's still doing mileage, but it's going to start coming down every week. And the workouts are a little bit shorter. I mean, it's still a lot for a lot of people, but shorter for them. What are the challenges of coaching folks through that tapering period when they cut down on mileage to get ready for a big race? Everyone kind of goes through this period of, did I do enough? Do I, should I add more? Should I make up for anything that I missed? And, you know, we've gone through the flu season. We've gone through injuries and people are like, oh, but I missed this, this, and this. And what you have to keep reminding them is that training is, is set for people to, you know, miss some things for injury or for illness and it's okay. And they, you know, it's better not to overdo it now and to get to the starting line healthy than to overdo it and not get to the starting line, which is, is really hard for some people. And the other thing that's hard for people during the taper time is that they're going to start having a lot more energy. And when they have more energy, they feel like they want to do more things or they want to go out and add things. But they, you just have to make sure they just stay with their routine and not add anything new. And think, think, oh, I have time. Maybe I should take this class or maybe I should, you know, go shopping more. It's like, no, keep with your routine and don't add anything new, even though you're starting to feel like you have more energy to do things. So that includes even things that aren't running related, just like going out and doing activities. Yeah. I mean, just going out and I mean, just being on your feet all day shopping or, you know, trying something new or sitting more than you usually do, things like that. It's it's definitely changing your routine that can add issues. What did that last hard workout look like before the taper started? So they've done, they do a two-hour run, which about every 30 minutes they change the pace that they're running. So they'll run at marathon pace for like 30 minutes. They'll run at half marathon pace for 30 minutes. They'll, you know, go back to marathon pace and half marathon pace. So every 30 minutes they're changing up their pace. As a coach, how do you design that workout? So for a lot of racing, especially for marathoners, it's making sure that you understand the pace that you're running and making sure that you don't go out too hard at the beginning. A lot of excitement can cause you to go out too fast and then puts you in a hole for later. So starting off being conservative, starting off knowing what the pace you're supposed to run is and being able to feel that pace is really important. But then also in the race, you have to understand that people are going to put in surges and people are going to make moves and you have to be ready and able to change pace. And if you can do that then that means that you're ready to go and you have to make sure the body is is okay with it. And especially on our course for this trials, the hills and <laughs> it's going to be interesting. So you have to be able to change paces coming off a hill, going down a hill, and when you start getting really tired. So that workout when you're saying you go at marathon pace and then half marathon pace, it sounds like it's kind of equally about being able to feel that marathon pace and stay at that as much as it is like being able to surge into a faster speed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's helping them understand the pace and then being able to change paces so that if people do make a move, they're okay with it and they've done it. They've, you know, they've worked through it and then going back and being able to go back to marathon pace and making another surge. Tell us a little bit about what these marathon trials are going to be like. How many other athletes are going to be there and what are the stakes of that day that's coming up? Well, this will currently be the largest Olympic marathon trials ever held. Usually there's somewhere between mm, 250 and 375 athletes, both men and women. But this year there's going to be close to 700 athletes. It's the largest, you know, <laughs> Olympic trials ever hosted. 
The biggest problem is going to be the fluid stations. There's never been a marathon with this many elite fluid stations, fluid bottles, personal hydration. It's going to be definitely a challenge, not only for us as an organization to put on, but for the athletes to get through those hydration stations without missing a bottle, without knocking things over. It's going to be an interesting challenge that I'm sure everyone will learn from and critique later. Uh, But our organization is probably one of the best that could have handled this type of situation. The top three will make the Olympic team for both men and women. Uh, The fourth person will be the alternate, which sometimes the fourth person always seems to be the most uh, popular athlete because everyone probably feels the worst for them (laughs) that they missed the team by a spot. Uh, So it's it's definitely high stakes for everybody entering this race. So you said 700 people are going to be there. Are all of those folks in the running to be in those top three or four spots? Or is it sort of clear how it could shake out? There's probably probably 20 to 25 guys and probably 20 women that have a real legitimate shot of making the team. Everyone else, I would say, is doing it for experience for later, for next time, for 2024. Or this is really their Olympics. I mean, those that are running, you know, 240 to 245, this is kind of their Olympics. This is a really big deal for them. It's, you know, it's a huge bucket list. It's something that they've trained for for years. And, you know, this is kind of, like I said, their Olympic day. 240 to 245 is still an incredibly fast marathon. Oh, no, it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how do the fluid, what do the fluid stations look like? Is there a difference between like an elite fluid station and one that a casual marathoner would encounter? How are those set up? So an elite marathoners, for example, they, you do a bottle every 5K and everyone has different what they want. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, people used to use flat Coke and now there's every type of you know, fluid and stuff that you could possibly want. So you create your own bottles and that could be whatever anybody's comfortable with. A lot of people use, you know, tall bottles with a flip top. Some people use squeezable ones. You decorate it, you label it. You have to turn your bottles in the night before. The organization then takes them out and puts them on tables. And with this many athletes, the tables are probably a half mile long, not a table itself, but there's tables spread out every so many feet. There's X number of bottles per table. They're separated, you know, front and back. And so for example, you'll turn in your bottle, it'll be labeled, you'll get told, okay, you're at table one, position B or position six or whatever that is. And then when you're running, each table will have this massive number on it. And you'll get to your table, maybe your table number six, position you know, C, and you'll know exactly where your bottle is at every single table at every single water shop because it'll be at that same one. Uh, So it's a lot of organization on our part to make sure that all the bottles are placed correctly. You know, the bottle for your first station is at the first station because not every bottle you make is the same. For example, some people might want caffeine at, you know, their fourth bottle and some people want caffeine at every bottle. Some people might have some type of goo packet or something taped to their bottle, you know, and it's their fifth bottle, whatever it is, you label them and then we make sure that we get them out there and set them down. Now, the issue becomes is when people are running and if you're in a big pack, if your bottle is next to somebody else's, you could accidentally knock it over, you could accidentally take somebody else's, it becomes an interesting game. And so the athletes have to know and understand that, okay, I have my bottles placed out there, but something could happen along the way. And so there's also regular hydration stations with bottled water and bottled Powerade, and they have to be bottled because of doping control. So nothing can be open. They can't take something that anyone's given them. They can't take something that's been open just because of liability because you just don't know what's happened. So it's 
it's a lot. And if you run a normal marathon, that's not the Olympic trials or an elite race. There's just water stops. There's different kind of fluid stations and stuff. Like for example, the Publix marathon is the next day that we host. And there's different stations that we have for that. For the Publix Atlanta marathon, there's orange stations and uh, cliff shot stations and things like that. But for the Olympic marathon trials, everything is either your personal stuff or it's something that's been closed. How do athletes decide what they're going to want at station one and station two and when they're going to need caffeine and when they're going to want goo? It's definitely a, a trial and error. And even for the marathoners that I coach that are doing their first marathon ever, it's a trial and error. Everybody takes different things. Their gut reacts differently. And your gut reacts differently from the first bottle to the last bottle. And it's definitely a trial and error. For example, we coach Wilkerson Given and Matt McDonald. And they both take different things. You know, one of them will want... The same thing throughout the entire marathon. You know, Matt had to add more salt to some of his stuff. Some of them want caffeine. And so it's it's definitely different. And the other marathoners that I coach for, let's say, Publix Atlanta Marathon, they'll take things like pretzel sticks towards the end. But they've tried it through practice and they've tried it through other races. And once you figure out what works, you don't change it unless it doesn't work in your next marathon. What are the challenges of coaching someone through their very first marathon? I think it's the lack of confidence and not knowing what's going to happen. You know, a lot of people don't run past 22 miles. Some people don't run past 20 miles in practice. And they're, the unknown of what happens at last six miles for a lot of people is really emotionally and, and mentally hard to fathom. But, you know, they just have, I just tell people, hey, it's you put in the time, you put in the work. These training programs have been tried and tested by a lot of people. So you just have to have the faith and believe in your training. And that's, I think, the hardest part for people that are doing their first marathon. And they just don't know what to expect. I mean, everyone's hitting the walls different. Some people, their legs can't move. Some people, it's their gut reacts really badly. Um, it just depends. And so the, the fear of that, of how you're going to react, is is definitely really hard. Is it challenging to get people up to that like 20 or 22 mile training run? It is if they haven't been consistent. If they've been consistent, we slowly move them up, you know, one or two miles a week. And so when they get there, they've they've done it. You know, they've done 16, 18. So they've done almost that. And we tell them, hey, it doesn't matter what pace you're going this last bit. You just have to make sure you get through it. And you've run a marathon yourself, right? Well, I did. I was uh, training for one and then I got injured. So I ended up doing the marathon with a friend and it was one of the best experiences I've ever done. We did a, you know, we did it in six hours and it was New York and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Oh, that's great. What made it so, so superlatively good? I think it was just helping her get through the marathon and kind of overcoming some of the stuff that, that she'd done. And I was kind of like the Sherpa. I, I had probably... I don't know, three or four different belts on and pockets full of stuff. So I was, you know, I was carrying all the different stuff, like different waters and goos and pretzel sticks. And I got to enjoy the marathon and, you know, read the signs people were holding up and talk to people and talk her through the hard times. And I got to see what the what the back of the pack experience is in the marathon and, and being able to coach people through that and doing it myself for once was a really good experience for me to be able to help the new marathoners to know what to expect. Like, for example, when you're running in the elite side of it, you know, it, the road is pretty clear and the fluid stations are really nice and organized. When you're in the back of the pack doing a six-hour marathon, you end up running over piles and piles of cups and the road is sticky and there's a lot of people you have to run around. So it's a completely different experience doing it from the elite side to the back of the pack for the marathon. That's a really interesting perspective. What did those last like four miles look like for the two of you? And what did you say and do to get through that? 
Well, I, I definitely uh, held her hand and walked a little bit. It was, you know, there's definitely some tears and definitely fear of not being able to finish. But once you get so close to the end, the adrenaline starts kicking up again and just talking through things, listening to the different music along the course and being able to encourage people that you pass and people that are passing you, encouraging you. It really becomes a, a really great community out there. And it really helps you get through those last few miles. That's one of my favorite parts of running, especially races in New York, how I, I find that like half the time I can make a race buddy by the end of the race where we're like running together across the finish line. It's a good feeling. Oh, yeah. That, that, that is one of the best parts of it. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. How long have you been a coach with Atlanta Track Club? It's just over five years now. Were there any things that took you a while to get used to or a while to learn about being in the job? Well, my husband and I coached together and we had to learn really quickly to divide and conquer and not really step on each other's toes. That probably took the longest part uh, just so that we'd stay out of each other's way. And I think the other part was, um, you know, I had been on the elite side for so long that going back and learning, you know, the paces for the different times. And um, I had also never done run walk. And that's a really big thing for some marathoners and half marathoners is doing a run walk where you, you know, run for 30 seconds, walk for 30 seconds or run for any amount of time, like a minute on a minute off kind of thing. Learning that and helping people do that for training was a big part of it. Those that do, you know, speed walk for the marathons and stuff. So working through that with the new runners and walkers definitely took took a little bit. But now I feel like I've understand it from every perspective. You know, some people the starting and stopping is doesn't feel great, but for other people it's it's comfortable. Their joints like it better. They just get into that rhythm of doing it and they like it. I think one of the hardest parts is convincing people that, you know, that don't have any joint issues, don't have any health issues, and getting them confident enough to work up to fully running. And there's some people that will always do run walk and they don't want to move up to running and that's totally fine. But then there's others that giving them the confidence that they can run the entire way without walking. I think is is a hard part because they're so used to that 
that rhythm of the run walk. And so sometimes on Wednesday workouts, I'll say, Hey, let's just, let's just turn that off. And, you know, let's just run as far as you can and walk when you need to. And sometimes they surprise themselves for how far they can run without actually having to stop. Do you find that the ways that you encourage those athletes that are just starting out or just kind of figuring out how far they can even push themselves to run, is that different from encouraging an elite runner who's been doing this all the time to, say, take on a more challenging workout or, you know, push themselves harder? I think for both the beginners and the elites, it's giving them the confidence that they're getting better, they're getting fitter, that they can do more than they thought they could. I mean, no matter what No matter where you are, I think that's the hardest part is understanding that you're stronger than you were, you're fitter than you were, and that you're more capable than you thought you were. I think really that is is universal between the two. How did you get into running in the first place? I was one of those weird little kids that saw someone running and thought it looked like fun and asked to do it, but I was already doing everything else. So my parents had me wait a little bit. And and then I started running and it really just kind of stuck with me. And it's something that I guess was, I enjoyed doing and I got a lot of pleasure out of doing it. And when did you first realize that running could be your career in one form or another? When I was 10, you know, they asked us in school to write, you know, what are your life goals or whatever. And I wrote, be an Olympian and open a no-kill dog shelter. And there was a third one. I can't remember what it is anymore. So I guess, you know, not only did running seem fun to me, but I also thought it was something I wanted to be part of my life. At that point, I didn't know running could be your career or be something that you did. I just knew that it's something I wanted to do, but I didn't really know the path on how to do it at that point. What did it feel like when you made it to the Olympics? Was it what you had imagined? It definitely was. I would say it was more overwhelming than anything else. Um, And, you know, 2008 and 2009 were great years. And, you know, I thought running was going to continue for a long time. I thought I would make it to 2012 Olympics and that didn't happen. But, you know, when you're in the moment and it's just, you know, running is kind of everything and you can feel on top of the world and then it can get taken away. So you have to enjoy it when you're doing it. What happened that prevented you from getting to 2012? Um, I ended up having two Achilles surgeries and coming back from that, trying to come back from that, I ended up with a, oh, a stress fracture and a kind of a torn hamstring And those two things just kind of, that was it. That was kind of the last straw for my body. So how did you get into coaching initially? Because you weren't always a coach. You started out as an elite runner and an Olympian. Tell us a little bit about how you made that shift. Well, funny enough, I wanted to go to physical therapy school. And when I retired from running, I was told that my science classes were too old and I'd have to redo physics and organic chem and all those terrible classes that nobody wants to redo and do a second time. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not doing that. And the PT who helped me through all my injuries said, hey, I bet I could probably, you know, make a call and have them give you an exception and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ugh. But I was like, but if you can't, then I have to retake all these classes. And, you know, I just, I I don't want to go through that again. So I did this podcast for RRCA and listening to all these women talk about how they got started running back in this 50s, 60s, and 70s and how they went through things. And then I just started deciding, well, hey, you know, my husband has been coaching and, you know, I've coached some on and off. I coached, you know, some middle schoolers and some recreational women. I'll try to get into into coaching. So I applied and my first year I didn't get any jobs. And my second year I got offered five different jobs at the same time, which was funny because you get nothing and then all of a sudden you get them all. And I ended up coaching at the University of Connecticut for a year and a half. And then I came to Atlanta. You've retired from running. You do this podcast, you start applying to jobs, you get a bunch, and you start as a coach at UConn. 
were you nervous to to start that first season? What did that feel like? Oh, it was a lot. Um, <laughs> NCAA has a ton of rules. So you have to make sure that you're following every single rule and you have to work with compliance and it's kind of trial by fire the first time. And and you kind of, it is a small school. I mean, there was just the head coach, myself, and the sprint coach. There's only three of us. We didn't have any graduate assistants. We didn't have any volunteer assistants, which you usually do. But being a small school that we were, we didn't have any of those extras. So a lot of stuff just fell on myself and, and the other coach because our head coach ended up having a hip replacement surgery. So he was out for about eight weeks during uh, that first semester as well. And it was even more trial by fire. But I think just getting through that part and then adding recruiting on top of that and traveling and you know making sure that the athletes are doing what they need to do it was a lot uh, in the first year and a half, to say the least. But coaching the pro world's a little bit easier. There's a lot less rules. Uh, there's a lot less, you know, guidelines you have to follow. And obviously, they're not taking classes, but you know, a lot of them have jobs and things like that that they're doing. Tell us a little bit more about the podcast that you recorded in between being a runner and coaching. What was the premise of the podcast? I ran into Jean Knack from the RRCA, the Roadrunners Club of America, and she wanted to do this women's oral history project, an oral history of women's running, and she needed somebody to do all these interviews. And I said, well, hey, I have no idea what I want to do with my life, so hey, why not? Uh, so she hired me to do interviews, and we made a list of the top 50 women who started running you know, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I got to interview these amazing women who ran with no equipment or anything back then. They weren't allowed to run over 400 meters. 800 meters was the farthest they allowed at the Olympics at that time. And it was just an amazing experience to talk to them about the things they went through, what they had to overcome to run, you know, the people that helped them in their careers, and then, you know, how they transitioned out of running. And it was really a cathartic thing to help me figure out where to go with my life. Can you talk a little bit about why that experience was cathartic? Because prior to that, you were at the Nike Oregon Project running under Alberto Salazar, who has been in the news lately for the toxic culture that he created for women. I'm just guessing that it must have been really nice to talk to all these women in running and and kind of get out of that perspective a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was. It was, you know, I was with the third woman that Alberto had coached. And it was definitely an interesting experience um, retiring and, you know, not knowing what I want to do at that time and, and just going through the experience that I did. But listening to what these women had to overcome, I mean, they'd be out running and anytime someone would drive by, they would stop and walk because women weren't supposed to be running or, uh, you know, they weren't allowed to race. For example, if they were in a road race or cross country race, they had to start two minutes behind the men because, you know, quote, women weren't supposed to be in these races. So they made them start in the back or they had to climb fences. You know, the, it was just a lot of things that they had to overcome. So it just made it made the little things that I had to overcome seem so much less <laughs> than what they had to do because they weren't even allowed to run. And here I was allowed to run and I was paid to run and it was my profession for, you know, 12 years. And they didn't even have those opportunities. I read that when you started out running in middle school, you actually had to run on the boys team uh, because there wasn't a girls team at your middle school. So it sounds like even within your lifetime, there's been a lot of progress. Yeah, definitely. That was really kind of funny to have a little bit of that experience with the women that I talked to and, you know, not having a girls team in, in middle school. I enjoyed running with the boys and I thought it was hilarious and I thought it was fun, but they didn't, they didn't even have that opportunity when they were, you know, when some of those women were growing up. 
on Twitter, after Mary Kane's story in the New York Times came out, you mentioned that during your time at the Oregon Project, you were told that you were too fat and had the quote unquote biggest butt on the starting line. And you also wrote that your experiences make you a better coach. And I'm wondering how you apply that experience at the Oregon Project to your work now and how that changes how you coach people now. Yeah, it's when I first put that out there, it was just really to back up Mary. And I really hadn't really stepped into that arena. And it was it was definitely kind of like the podcast that I did. Putting that out there was also another cathartic thing that just kind of lifted a lot of stuff for me. And it's been really good since then. What I took away from that was, you know, Alberto taught me a lot. He taught me how to work hard. He taught me how to, you know, easy days and hard days and how to compete on the world level. But I also learned things like, for example, you need to use, like he used science, but he was also somewhat emotional in his coaching, you know, between Tuesday and Friday, you know, his opinion of how I looked or how I, you know, if I was in shape or not would change, you know, and Andrew has worked with me to not be as an emotional coach like that, to not let things like that affect me as much. Um, But that's just what I, I was used to with the program at the Oregon Project was, to be a little bit more emotionally reactive to stuff. Um, so that's, I'm still working on on that, not being as emotionally reactive to things. But it also taught me that, I guess, to have better team dynamics, the team would revolve around, you know, certain people and their mood for the day or certain people and how they raced. For example, if we went to a race and three of us had amazing days and PR'd, but, you know, one person didn't, then the rest of us couldn't celebrate our great days because of that one person. So it, it all it taught me that the team dynamics can't just revolve around one person. They need to it needs to be a synergy of everyone working together. And so I think that was one of the things that I bring to the team is we don't let just let one person dictate how things are going to run. I guess the other thing is is in the Oregon project running was life and and that's a little bit how it has to be, but also, if you're if you're not a happy runner, you're not going to run fast. So you you can't take everything away from from an athlete and just make them live in this bubble of running because there is more to that. And you know, there's family and other things. With the Oregon Project, there there was just running. <laughs> there wasn't family. There wasn't anything else uh, that you really could could take time out for. And and that is something that I want to make sure that our our athletes get a chance to do as well. It's a it's hard. It's a fine line, but you have to make sure that the runner is happy as well. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. What do you say when you're talking to an athlete after a race that didn't go as planned? Is there like a line that you have or something that you say that kind of buffers that disappointment or any emotions that you might have about it that you don't like want to take out on them? Uh, Well, funny enough, I learned this, what, my first or second year coaching here, an athlete had a really bad race and I walked up behind him and I was like, what was that? And he turned around and he had gotten a bloody nose and like the front of him was just covered in blood because he had been trying to wipe it away during the race. And for some reason, I didn't see that on him when he was racing. And so when he turned around, he was just covered with blood. I was like, wow, okay. So I learned 
very quickly that you need to do a 360 view of the athlete before you say anything. And then you also kind of need to ask them how they're doing and kind of evaluate where they are mentally and physically before you have any type of conversation about how that race went. And then you just kind of take it from there depending on what they say. Right, because they might have an obvious explanation or... Yeah, and just, you know, jumping in and assuming without finding out all the information, I definitely learned is not a good idea. How do you know when to encourage someone to work harder or worry more about their diet or their sleep versus when to back off a little bit and say, okay, you, you have to be a person right now. How do you toe that line? Well, we, I, we focus on the little things at first. We focus on having them have good sleep patterns. We focus on just having, you know, good diet of variety, moderation and balance. Uh, we focus on the stretching and, you know, for us, a lot of the lifting is more physical therapy based. It's more, you know, working on the little things. So once we get all of those pieces in line and we work on adding mileage and harder workouts, it's just a step-by-step process. And we try to look at the entire year and we plan out the year for them. Hey, you know, these are going to be some downtimes and these are going to be times where you just need to go and relax and not think about running and just, you know, quote, be a normal person. But there's things that are going to come up in life, you know, with, with family and sickness and things like that. So you just have to really take it person by person and experience by experience and just, you know, hope you make the right decisions. And uh, and if you don't, then at the end of the season, you go back and you say, okay, what did we do wrong and what can we change for next time? One of the things that I really like about marathon training, even at an extremely non-elite level, is that it's striking how hard you're working when you're working hard. But then afterwards, you get this lull where you're just like, I could sit on the couch for a week and that would be okay. <laughs> no, yeah, we, we make sure that the marathoners take a really long time off afterwards and, and just really recover. And it's mentally and physically you need to recover, um, whether it was a good day or a bad day. Um, you know, there's going to be this down mentally, whether it was an amazing day or a bad day. And you just have to go and just let everything reset before you can start again. As someone who is formerly running professionally and an Olympian, was it hard to switch gears into saying, okay, I'm not going to be the person on the track or on the race course anymore? Yeah, Andrew used to tell me, it's not about you anymore, it's about them. And it's definitely something that's obvious. But I always tell people the hardest part, honestly, is the nerves and anticipation leading up to the race. So for example, you know, the athletes are nervous, you're nervous for them, but you can't show it. And they get to go out there and do the race and get the nerves out. You as a coach, there's no release for that. You're just sitting there nervous waiting for them to start and there's your nerves just sit there. Uh, So that's probably the hardest part of being a coach is just waiting on the anticipation of what the results will be. But other than that, it's um, when I retired, my body was just kind of done. Every now and then my brain would be like, oh, that's fun. And my body's like, yep, nope, you're done. Uh, so <laughs> there's, I was definitely ready to be done and, and to move on to the next part of coaching and being able to help the athletes not make the mistakes that I did with different things, whether it be injuries or prioritizing different things. You know, my goal is to help them make it to the next level and to improve a little bit faster than I did by avoiding some of the you know mistakes that I made along the way. What were some of those mistakes? You know, for example, when I was younger and I wasn't you know, I wasn't making a lot of money with running. It's really easy on the roads to chase the money and and do things because of the money that you could make, you know, throwing in races that maybe it wasn't the best idea, coming back from injury too quickly to meet contract obligations, just prioritizing the wrong races, the wrong time of year, things like that. So that's why we, you know, we try to plan the year out, but know that there is going to be some changes. So that way we know what the priorities will be throughout the year. 
You mentioned that it's one of the hard parts about coaching is that your nerves don't get that release when the race starts. What do you do to get rid of those nerves? <laughs> I mean, if they have a great race, you're excited for them and getting to see their excitement after the race it really helps. If they have a bad race, that's the harder part because you usually spend the next day or so, especially that night, trying to figure out, okay, what do we need to change? Is there any changes that did be, need to be made? Was it just an off day? trying to get the athlete to talk to you about why they had an off day and maybe there's more to it than they've been telling you. Maybe there's something going on them that they just haven't shared with you yet and trying to get that out. Um, I think that's probably harder to deal with the bad days with the nerves and stuff like that. Do you still run yourself as well? Oh, if I run three or four times a week, you know, anywhere from three to four miles, I'm pretty happy with that. Trying to run a little bit more, but that at least keeps me happy and healthy. Is it hard having, I mean, for me, running is such a stress relief and it's this thing that's so different from my job that I really, really like. Is it hard having running being connected to your job? It is. I mean, I went through phases during my career where it was a stress relief or it was the thing that caused stress um, because it was my job and my, you know, my income and life depended on it. And then I went through a phase where I was injured and had to retire and, you know, running, I couldn't do running for a while. And then, um, you know, now it's my job and there's days that I'll, you know, get in my running clothes and I'll be in running clothes all day because I think I'll have time to do it. And then you'll be standing out at practice for four or five hours and you're so cold by the time you're done. You're like, yeah, no, I'm not going to go run now. Um, so I'm in running clothes a lot. I just don't always get it done. <laughs> and now I know why coaches don't stay in shape because I always wondered, you know, how are coaches not in shape? Like, how do they get out of shape? Because they're, you know, out there practice all the time. Well, it's because, yeah, you're at practice, but you're dealing with all sorts of things. You're not actually doing it or participating in it. At least most of the time you're not. What did it feel like when you started coaching? Did it feel like, you know, oh, I have this figured out again or or did it take longer to settle into it? Oh, no, I think. Figuring out coaching is a lifelong thing because every athlete's different. And as running has evolved, you have to kind of evolve with it. You know, for example, like, you know, altitude training kind of got thrown in as a thing that people do. And, you know, different kind of training philosophies come and go. And now, right now we're dealing with the shoe technology. So as a coach and with running, it's still continuing to evolve. And we have to continue to work with all the different things that come up, you know, throughout I guess throughout time, <laughs> there'll probably be a lot more things that come up between now and when I retire. I have on my list of questions here that I was going to ask if you run with your dog, but your dog <laughs> sounds a little bit small for running. <laughs> well, I honestly, when I was in college, I had a little Yorkie that would run with me. Uh, this one, definitely not. Really? Oh, yeah. My When I was in college, we had a Yorkie and a Jack Russell, and they would run with us our morning runs of you know three to four miles. And they were competitive little suckers. But this one, definitely not. This one's a princess that that would prefer to be carried and you know if she feels in the mood she'd walk is there anything you wish i had asked you or you think people should know more about i'm really excited right now where you know the sport is headed in the equality for women not only in in pay and and maternity but also now just with women and you know the red s relative energy deficiency in sport just in how women and athletes are being treated. I think we're really at a really nice spot with sport that I think things are just going to continue to get better and better for women, not only in running, but in the other sports as well with the WNBA adding all those provisions to their contracts. So I think we're in a really fun place right now for women's athletics. Is there any specific development that makes you most hopeful that there's going to be more equality for women in the sport? I think the WNBA's contracts 
I think they set a nice precedent for all the other sports going forward. Nike and the other sports putting in maternity protection into their contracts is a huge jump. It's a definitely a huge change from what it used to be. So those, both of those things really give hope to a lot of the athletes in the past who, like the women that I interviewed, you know, they didn't have anything. It's can be a career for women and now it can be options for women to pursue not only before they have kids, but after they have kids. Is there anything that you do with your athletes to make sure things are more equal and inclusive that other folks should do as well? I think just treating athletes fairly and, you know, it's hard, you know, team sports are a little bit different, you know, track and field uh, with road racing and track and field like we have. It's, It's pretty individualized and just treating everybody fairly and giving them opportunities to compete and train and be the best that they can be is is all that you can really do you know as a coach and as an athlete thank you so much for joining us i really appreciate it well thank you so much that's it for this episode of working again i'm shannon paulus if you liked this episode please remember to rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Justin and Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for our ad music. Thanks for listening. Catch us next week for another episode on running. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.